Uh, when you study ancient worlds, ancient civilizations, you'll notice something that's common to all of these different civilizations. And that is that every single one of them has temples as a key component to their culture. Atheism and secularism were ridiculous in the old world. Just as ridiculous as unicorns and elves are to us today. See, the ancients believed that the universe in which they lived overlapped with the spiritual. That the two worlds coincided and existed in and penetrated one another. And so therefore, they believed that the gods were all around them. There were spiritual entities and powers that were present all around them, even though they couldn't see them. Often, these entities were connected with the rivers and trees, the sun and the moon. Uh, Usually, they believed that the deities were either dependent upon these different aspects of creation, or some would even believe that these aspects of creation were the deities themselves, that they kind of blended themselves together in a pantheism. But it was at their temples that heaven and earth most intimately came together. That's why temples were so important. That's why so many of the temples you will find, they even constructed them with such precision that they would line up to the stars and the constellations and follow even the seasons and how the moon and the sun would interact with the shadows and the light because they believed that here at their temples it was where God and human or the gods and humans most intimately came together. They were places that were people came to either encourage the gods in their activity or they were places that people came to appease the gods that were angry at them for some reason. To encourage the gods in the ancient civilization, many of the temples were very, not very different from brothels. Uh, since the gods were closely associated with fertility, At the temples, they often had temple prostitution. They believed that through ritualized sex, they would encourage the gods to be gods of fertility. Uh, That this would help the gods keep the rain coming and keep the crops coming and keep famine away. This was the case in ancient Israel. The Baal and the Asherah cults all around them were basically sex cults. The Message Bible just even refers to them as sex cults because that's what they were. And the temple in Corinth in Paul's day had over a thousand temple prostitutes in it. So not only in ancient Israel, but even in New Testament times, this was still a predominant theme of trying to help the gods be gods that would help the land be virtuous by ritualized sex. But the temples were also places where people tried to appease the anger of the gods. And usually this was done through blood sacrifice. The most extreme of this was the ancient Aztecs. On their temples, they'd cut the beating heart out of their victim's chest and offer it to their gods. At the height of Aztec civilization... 
scholars put the number of human sacrifices at 20,000 humans a year. And there are many depictions like this. I don't know if a kid drew that or, 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 or who in that time period drew, but many depictions like this of different types of, of works that show the ritualized sacrifice of literally dozens of people each day trying to appease the gods. So it's interesting that sex and violence and murder dominated culture. In the ancient world. And it was the temple at which these things happened most prevalently. We should hear the often correct critique in this of how dangerous religion is for the world. Because in most cases it certainly has been. And anybody that can look at all these things and say that all religions are the same doesn't understand some of the basics of the differences between religions. Religion has been one of the dominant pushers of deviant sexuality and one of the dominant pushers of violence and murder throughout history. A segment of some of the Greek philosophers raised this objection to religion by even looking at the gods in the mythology that the Greeks believed. And they looked and said, the gods that you worship are so immoral. If you ever, ever looked at mythology, you realize how immoral the lives of the gods are. And so it, from these Greek philosophers, they said it makes sense then that if those are the kinds of gods that you'd worship, then we as a people become just is immoral. Back in Acts chapter 7, where we have landed right now in the book of Acts that we're going through, Stephen tells a very different story. He tells a very different story than the story of the gods that so predominated culture. And when we get back behind this, we begin to understand how radically different the message of the Christian story is, and to be true, also the message of the Jewish story that eventually led to Christ. It was so different from the dominant religions everywhere else that were full of sexuality and violence. Stephen tells the story that essentially goes from Abraham to Solomon. It's a story that goes from a promise that God gives to Abraham to the fulfillment of that promise in the reign of Solomon. But then there's a tragic part of the story that once it reaches its fulfillment in Solomon, we discover that the people are unable to live in that fulfillment. They don't even last the reign of Solomon and everything begins to come crumbling down. Without a change of heart, you can change all the structures, you can change all the format, you can give people the land and you can do all the things, but without a change of heart, we see time and time again, it just comes crumbling down. Now since God's story happens in history, it's important that we understand, and that's why I started to talk about even some of these ancient civilizations and temples, it's important that we understand history in order to properly understand the story. 
When we don't do that, we make mistakes. And so this morning I want to be looking particularly at the temple in Israel's story. And we need to understand the background in which all of this came to be to understand the significance of what's happening. If we don't do that and we just put our modern concepts onto the Bible, we end up making mistakes like thinking of the Jewish temple kind of like a church building. And when we do that, we run into problems like in some Catholic churches that you will go to, there are certain parts of the stage where you're not allowed to enter. Because those parts of the stage are deemed as like the Holy of Holies in the temple or the tabernacle. Or in some Protestant churches, some of you might might have grown up like this, you can't sell baking in the foyer because the foyer is some kind of Gentile prayer court. And again, not knowing background, not knowing what's going on, we impose modern day concepts onto an ancient building as if they just equate one another. Even using the term sanctuary to refer to where we conduct our worship services, this room in that we're right now, is rather an unfortunate term. Because it implies that somehow the room that we're in right now has more sanctity to it than when we go through those doors and we go outside or into God's creation. That it implies that this is a more holy place. Auditorium would probably be a better term to call this room here because there's no such thing in biblical Christian thinking that certain places are more holy than other places. This all stems from a incorrect modernized reading back into Jewish temple. And then there is the cuss word of calling the church building God's house. Whenever, whenever I hear that, I cringe when people say, you know, this is God's house. And I'm like, wash your mouth out with soap. Um, a church building is not God's house. And so we've got to be very careful with our terminology because we are imposing certain theological categories or concepts usually on a wrong reading or understanding, a ahistorical reading of Old Testament. These ideas come about when we don't respect history. When we don't respect the fact that scripture is rooted in something that actually happened. And we have to approach scripture in understanding the history or we make a real mess of things. Resulting then in wrong ideas about God and wrong ideas about church and community and what it means to live in relationship with him. But when we understand the importance of history... And we understand the importance of temples in ancient culture, we end up getting a much better grasp of the story. And that's also why this is so important, because understanding context and history only enhances our knowledge of what's going on and who God is. It doesn't diminish it, it enhances it, it brings it to life, it gives us a better grasp of who God is. And what was happening in our case today with the Jewish temple. Now I won't quickly go over Stephen's story in Acts chapter 7 as I did last week. I kind of did a real quick summary of it when we looked at the land. I'd encourage you to, to listen to last week's sermon if you're not familiar with that. Or just read Acts chapter 7 on your own. 
maybe later today, and just familiarize yourself with the story that Stephen is telling. Today, because of our focus, I want to start with Acts 7, 39, and we're going to kind of move from there. We pick up the story there in Acts 7, 39, where it begins to move towards the building of the temple, which happens in the, at the climax of the story, which is the reign of Solomon. Through the power of God, Yahweh, the one true God, Yahweh, the name that he gave, revealed himself in a burning bush to Moses. And told Moses that Moses was set apart by God to set the people of Israel free from the Egyptians. And that's precisely what happened. Moses went, Moses proclaimed God's word. Eventually, after a lot of plagues, they were set free. They left through the parted sea. But the story quickly turns sour. No sooner is Israel through the Red Sea, and now they're making their way to the land that God's promised them, and they're making their way through the desert, when it says that there in the desert, they rejected Moses and wanted to return to Egypt. How quickly we forget. This, this is the sin of nostalgia. We, we look at the past as always better. And so here they are in the desert, and already they're looking back to Egypt, where they were slaves, and they're saying, man, Egypt was much better than this. Remember the good old days in Egypt? I mean, man, if we just get back to that, now we're following this loser named Moses, and he's taking us through the desert, and what's going on? We can just go back to Egypt. And then in the other stories in the Old Testament, it talks about how they even started to think about the food. Oh, when we were in Egypt, we had good food to eat. We had good uh, drink to drink. And so it says they rejected Moses and wanted to return to Egypt, even asking Moses' brother Aaron to make us some gods. Make us some gods, kind of maybe like some of those gods back in Egypt. This is exactly what Freud and Marx said that the human condition is continually doing. And they're right for the most part, that the human condition is constantly trying to make gods in our image. Rather than recognizing the one true God in whose image we are, we constantly craft gods And we make them into our image. There's the danger, again, if we're not rooted in Scripture, of even doing that with the Christian God. He just simply becomes, we we use terms, the right quote-unquote terms, but he's really just a figment of our wishes, our dreams, our hopes, and our imagination. We create a God in our own image. And this is what the people want to do here. Make us some gods. I mean, think about how ridiculous even that statement is. Isn't it the gods that make us? By, by simply saying, make us some gods, then aren't we the creator of the gods? Why would we worship something we made? And yet, that's exactly what happened. Verse 42 says that the people of Israel started serving the sun and the moon and the stars as their gods. They created a calf to be their God and worshipped it and bowed down before it. But then in the midst of all of this, we're introduced to something called the tabernacle. Stephen says 
that under Moses' watch, the tabernacle was constructed according to God's plan showed to Moses. God asked his people to build a tabernacle. And God even gave Moses the specific plan of how to build this tabernacle. And then Moses was to take people who were artistic and creative and engineers and knew how to build things and to build this tabernacle in exact accordance with the plan of God. The tabernacle was a portable rectangular tank, tank, um, tent. Um, It was a tank in the sense that it moved around and it was a tent that could move around, which is what God was wanting with them building this. Quite unlike any temple that other people groups had for their gods, the tabernacle was unique. And this is something that's important to know and understand about the story. This is unique. Unique on, on, on the one hand for how simple it is. I mean, many people would look at that and go, that is what you build for your God? I mean, that just is, is a, simple temp, a, a simple tent. But the tabernacle allowed the people to pack it up and to take it with them through their wandering in the wilderness. Now, they were not supposed to just pack it up and take it wherever they wanted to go. They were to follow God. And God said that he would put a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And whenever the cloud moved, the cloud representing God, whenever the cloud moved, you were to pack up the tent and move with it. Follow God's directions. Inside the tabernacle were three sections. You had an outer court with an altar for burnt offerings on it and a wash basin. The burnt offerings there, unlike the Aztecs, were not human. Uh, They were lambs that people brought as an offering to God. There was a section called the holy place with a table of showbread, an altar of incense, and the menorah, which was seven bowls of burning oil, kind of like candles. And then there was the Holy of Holies. And this was meant to represent the throne of God dwelling in the midst of his people. There was a veil that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. Because the holy place could only be entered once a year by the priest. Because this was to remind the people of how unapproachable and how holy God was. Now, we don't have time this morning, and it's not conducive to today's message to talk about what all the different things in the tabernacle did and what they meant. The details don't really matter for today. With the exception that this place was a place that God told the people to build. That's key. This was the place that God told the people to build to remind them of his presence among them. It was this tabernacle that they took through the wilderness. It was this tabernacle that they took into the promised land when they conquered it, as Stephen reminds them in his telling of the story. Thus, despite all of the people's rebellion, even in the wilderness, 
God was saying that he was with his people. He was traveling with them. If they would just turn from their idols, if they would just turn from their false gods and turn to the gods whose very presence was with them, God would guide them. And then, there's an interesting twist in the story. Once everything's established, once the tabernacle has been built to the specifications that God gave them, once they travel through the wilderness with the tabernacle, once they come into the promised land and conquer the promised land with the tabernacle, then they set up their kingdom, and then after David, Solomon comes, and by Solomon's time, as we saw last week, everything in regards to the very literal understanding of the promise was fulfilled, the dimensions of the land, the amount of people, all of this is fulfilled here in Solomon's time, and then there is this twist in the story. As Israel becomes a nation, we read, as Stephen says in verse 46, David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. Now, here's an extremely important and often overlooked fact in the biblical story. Stephen is not simply giving us more historical information. He is telling us this because this is the turning point in the story. Notice how Stephen tells the story from Abraham all the way up to Solomon and the temple. And then ends his story and basically calls his listening audience a bunch of heathens. And you're asking yourself, why did you stop with Solomon in the temple and then all of a sudden chastise the people? What's going on? Why are you telling the story this way? This is why, if we don't understand the background, the history, and everything that's going on, the story doesn't make any sense. It just seems like a time filler. The reason and what's going on is that, as Stephen reminds everybody, God told his people to build a tabernacle. God never told his people to build a temple. That's important. God told his people to build a tabernacle. God never told his people to build a temple. David is the one who asks God and says, God, now that we're established, now that we're in the promised land, now that we've got all this, um, can we build a temple? You can almost hear David saying, look at all the other nations around us. They all have temples for their God. In fact, in the Old Testament story, when you actually read David's words, that's exactly what David said. Should our God live in a tent? All the other gods live in temples. I mean, what kind of testimony would this be? Anybody comes to, to, to us and they just see this tent and they say, yeah, that's where we go to worship our God. When all of their gods have these beautiful and elaborate temples, shouldn't we build a temple for our God? And so David asks. 
Nathan the prophet goes and brings the request to God. And then Nathan the prophet comes back to David and gives God's response to David. It's a twofold response. In 1 Samuel 7, God says this to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. This is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I have never lived in a house. From the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day. But when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. So God's response is twofold to David's request for a temple. First off, God says, the request is kind of ridiculous, because you cannot build a temple for me. I cannot be contained in a building. Secondly, he says, If a temple is going to be built for me, I will build it. I, God, will build it. How will I build it? I will build it myself through one of your sons, whom will also be a son of God. And his reign will be a forever reign. This then is followed by one of the great misunderstandings of the Bible. David hears this and goes, Ah, they must be talking about my son Solomon. I mean, obviously, this must be Solomon that he's talking about. And so David begins, because he's told that he's not going to be able to build it, David then spends the rest of his reign preparing for his son Solomon to build the temple. But it seems clear from what God said to David that this was not God's intent. Didn't God say, David, are you the one to build a house for me? Do you actually think I could live in a house? Why would then God all of a sudden say, but your son Solomon, he could build a house for me because I could live in that house. That doesn't make any sense. David, if you can't build a house for me, why would you think that Solomon could build a house for me? You're, you're, You're both unable to do that. Besides, the son of David, if you listen carefully to Nathan's word, the son of David whom God says he will raise up to build a house for him is described as one who shares the very name of God. He's also described as one who is also the son of God. He is also described as one whose kingdom and throne will endure forever. Well, none of those things are true about Solomon. None of those things are even true about Solomon's descendants. Eventually, when the south gets wiped out by the Babylonians, the the line ends. And there are no kings on the throne anymore. 
The person described here by Nathan is certainly not King Solomon, and it's certainly not talking about a physical temple, which he's negated by the first point. And though God uses our mistakes, they do build a temple, and God uses that temple for illustrative purposes of who he is, for the most part in Israel's history, the temple caused more problems for Israel than it helped. To go the way of the temple is to get it wrong. And that's what, Solomon, or that's what Stephen is saying in the telling of his story. And that's exactly what we see. That's what happened so quickly. No sooner was the temple built than pagan influences began to creep into Israel's worship. Even in Solomon's own day. Solomon builds the temple, and no sooner does Solomon build the temple than he begins also marrying all these foreign women and foreign wives, and they start bringing in their foreign gods, and the temple begins to become already in the time of Solomon kind of this smorgasbord of gods and deities. And this is precisely the point Stephen makes. Look at Acts 7 verse 48. It was Solomon who built the temple. And then Stephen reminds the people all the way back to what Nathan said in the beginning. And it's like, you guys, don't you get this? It was Solomon who built the temple, but the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asks the Lord, could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? Stephen tells a story right up to Solomon's building of the temple and then stops. And at this point, Stephen stops the story and calls his ancestors and his contemporaries who he is speaking to, he calls them pagans who should know better than to try to put God in a temple like the pagans do. He says, you stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. See how this is all adding up? Stephen's not just throwing out an insult. He's not just saying, you, you're a bunch of losers, you're a bunch of idiots. He's not, he's not just throwing out an insult. He is making a theological statement with the harsh words he's stating. He's saying, you are heathen, you are pagan at heart. Why? What's the theological significance of those words? He's saying, you constantly want to do it like the pagans. Not only did you want to return back to the pagan gods of Egypt... And worship the idols after I rescued you from them. But now when I put you in the promised land. You want to build for me a temple. Like the pagan nations built for their gods. And even when God said to you. Do you really think you can build me a temple? I don't live in houses. The only temple that will ever be built for me will be built by an eternal one who will be one of my sons. God's son. Yes, he will be from your line, but it will be something that I do and his reign will be forever. And then you go and hear that and then you build a physical temple. You pagans, you're, are, are, don't you see that our ancestors interpreted that like pagans, like heathens. 
And now you here today are acting the same way. You're thinking the fact in Stephen's day, look, we've got the temple. That must mean God's with us. Stop thinking of me like the gods everyone else worships. I am not like those gods. I will build my own temple. And it will not be anything like a temple you will build for me. This is what Stephen is preaching. Only if we understand that that's what he's preaching do we understand what started the whole sermon, remember what he's being accused of. It says that he was being accused of speaking against the temple. Well, if Stephen was just telling the story and saying, build a tabernacle, and then he built a temple, and it's all good, why would they say, why are they accusing him of speaking against the temple? It's because this is the story they know he's telling. And they know that what he's saying from their ears is he's speaking against the temple. It was never God's intent for his people to build for him a brick and mortar temple. As N.T. Wright states in his commentary on Acts 7, he says, As for the temple, it was at best ambiguous since God doesn't actually live in houses made by human hands. And at worst, it had become an idol. The temple at best is ambiguous because God doesn't live in houses made by humans. And at worst, the temple had become an idol. You see, the tabernacle would have been just fine. It would have set Israel apart from the surrounding nations. There's those weird Israelites that have this tabernacle. As I said earlier, old world nations saw their temples as the dwelling place of their gods. Thus, when one nation conquered another nation, it was often the, the temple that they targeted. Because if I conquered your nation and I could tear down your temple, it was essentially me saying, my God is bigger than your God. Or your God has abandoned you. This was, unfortunately, the bad theology that Israel kept falling into. So that when their temple did crumble, many of the people in Israel said, our God has left us. The temple's been destroyed. Our God has left. But Yahweh, the true God, would not be confined to our petty chess matches. It's all bad teaching. It's all bad theology. This pagan way of thinking about God, the kind of God who lives in temples that we build for them, the kinds of God that we want to lock down, we want to build a permanent temple. God is here. He's located. He's kind of definable. We know what he's like. We've locked him down. The tabernacle, on the other hand, that God asked for was mobile. You can't contain, you can't locate, and you can't control God. The whole idea behind the tabernacle was not that that's where God lived. 
It was simply a picture of his throne. It was simply a picture of God's presence among his people. But it was to be moving all the time because God isn't located in one place. He's on the move. And we move to where God is going. You can't pin God down. You can't say that he's here in this place and he doesn't move because you can't move a temple. The tabernacle reminded the people that God was with them in the wilderness. And therefore, the logic of that is even when they went to Babylon, God would be with them in Babylon. God is in all places. He's not confined. Destroying the temple didn't destroy God. It just destroyed many of people's false ideas about God. So was Stephen speaking against the Jewish temple? Yes. And no. Yes, Stephen was certainly speaking against the idea of temple that many of his contemporaries had. The idea that because they had a temple, or they once had a temple, therefore they had God. And it meant that God was with them. He was certainly speaking against that. But no, he was not speaking against the temple that God promised David that one of his sons, who was also a son of God, would build. He's definitely not speaking against that temple, that eternal temple. And it was actually not only that Stephen was saying no to the temple the people had made an idol out of it, but it was also that Stephen was actually announcing the real temple. Jesus' disciple John begins Jesus' story in his gospel this way. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God. The word was God. And so the word became human and made his home among us. Those that have looked at that passage know that the word that is being spoken about there in John's opening preface to his gospel is Jesus, is Christ. In the beginning was Christ. Christ already existed Christ was with God, Christ was God, and Christ became human and made his home among us. And when we look at that and we look at the word behind made his home among us, the actual word that John uses there for made his home among us is tabernacled. Jesus Christ tabernacled among us. Rather than in a magnificent temple, which becomes about us defining God, it was in the simplicity of tabernacle, or we could say in the simplicity of the manger that God tells us about himself. See how upside down God's story often is? You'd think in the Old Testament, why would we want to say that this tent symbolizes God. Why not make a magnificent temple for him? Doesn't God deserve that? And yet God knows how quickly that, that becomes all about us. And in the same way when he came in Christ, we say, why didn't he come down as a great king on a humongous throne? And instead he decided to come in a manger 
Because if he would have come on the way we think he should come, on a great throne and all of those things, it again becomes more about us. God chooses the tabernacle, the simple. God chooses the manger. But as God said to David, his plan was also to not just tabernacle, but was also to take up permanent residence with us. It was to then temple among his people. The difference, however, would be that he would build the temple, not we. So John continues his story of Christ who tabernacled among us in his incarnation. In the next chapter, he then tells this story. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased all the people out of the temple. See, now do you understand what's going on in Jesus turning over tables in the temple? It's, it's, it's not about bake sales. There's so much more going on here. It, it, it's, and it's even more than just Jesus saying people are cheating one another out of that. That was happening too. But ultimately, when Jesus was overturning it, he was saying, all of this is wrong. He drove out the sheep, the cattle, scattered the money changers, uh, coins over the floor, and turned over the tables. Interesting, like Stephen, Jesus was also put on trial for speaking against the temple. But then John records what God was already hinting at way back in David's time with Nathan. The Jewish leaders demanded of Jesus, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, to basically destroy the temple, knock everything over, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus says. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? They also use this later on when Jesus is on trial for his crucifixion. Uh, They use this statement. This man said he's going to destroy the temple. Because for the temple, if you destroy the temple, again, in that bad theology, then God leaves. But Jesus is saying, you've got it all wrong. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. There you go. The fulfillment of what God was saying to Nathan, to David. The temple that was going to come through a son of David who would also be a son of God, the person of Jesus Christ who came in the line of David. Jesus said this temple, when he said that, he meant his own body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this. And they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. In Jesus' resurrection, he became the temple through whom we could meet with God. Jesus is the place where we meet directly with God. That's also why on his crucifixion, the temple veil tore. Direct access to the Holy of Holies. It's not about buildings. It's about Jesus. He's the temple. In all of this, even today, we must resist the temptation to domesticate 
the one true God by associating him too closely with our buildings, with our land, with the gods of other religions, or with our ideas about what we think God should be like. There's no place for superstition in Christianity. In fact, in the theology book that the Bethany men are studying by Daniel Miglior, the chapter that we are going to be discussing this week on Wednesday and and the following Wednesday for the other group of guys, Daniel Miglior says on Revelation, he says, Revelation is not something that confirms what we already know. If you're reading scripture and it's just confirming this, confirming that, you're not getting revelation. Revelation is not something that confirms what we already know. Instead, it has to do with a knowledge of God that is utterly surprising, utterly frightening, disturbing, and even shocking. It is an event that shakes us to the core. God is never fully comprehensible. God never ceases to be a mystery. Never ceases to be more than human beings can ever think or imagine. God remains ever free. The Most High God does not live in temples made by human hands. God said, heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? We have to be careful. Even some of our loose language where we talk about God lives in heaven. God doesn't live in heaven. That would make heaven bigger than God. Heaven is my throne, God said. Heaven is no bigger than a fancy chair for God. And even that is just using human analogy. God's bigger than heaven. God's bigger than the earth. He's not a God like Zeus. And even these are only pictures. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him. Everything exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever and ever and ever. Amen. Paul says in Romans.